um, I think Carla Lollard Music said this, but butter is the best cheese, and that's exactly how Korean people feel right now. Like it's butter with red bean filling on pretzels, and it's called ang butter, and uh, it's. Probably like the food to get, and there's just butter in everything right now. You're listening to the Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Tina Choi is the soul-based genius behind one of my favorite YouTube channels around, Doobie Doobop. On this episode, we find out how Tina grew her following through hard work and a lot of style. We also talk about her food education at Cornell and why one of my favorite cities to visit, Seoul, Korea, is full of energy and innovation that cannot be matched. I really hope you enjoy my conversation with Tina Choi. Tina Choi, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So exciting. Yes. This is your first live in-studio podcast, which is crazy to me because you record so much. Yes, it is. Um, Most of the interviews that I've done has been over Zoom because I live in Korea and it was COVID. It was weird times, but I like this. I love the setup. It's so professional. (laughs) It feels right. I mean, we'll get into why I love Doobie Doo Bop so much. Your persona, your vlog. I hate that word, but it says something specifically. But I've known about you for a long time from TikTok and I love so much about what you do as a creator. I mean, I like that you're telling us about Soul City. I love visiting and we'll talk about that as well. But you also are really good at cooking. You're so good. I'm really not, but thank you. I'm honored. I'm very, like, I'm blushing so hard, which is such a shame to not be able to see on a podcast setting. But yes, I'm very, very flattered. Thank you for saying those things. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I want to ask you, what makes a really great Doobie Doobop video? Uh, I'm talking about the long form, not not the TikTok cuts, but... You know, you go sometimes as long as 30 minutes and you talk about how you're feeling. It's really, really, really important. And I just wanted to get like, how do you think about creating these videos? Vlogs for me is a bit of a glimpse into my life. So it, I try and keep it very raw and real. If, you know, the short form content is something that I curate and I have the stories kind of written out, it's edited, I record it over and over so that it's mm-hmm. 59.9 seconds <laughs> for YouTube shorts. Um Vlogs for me is like a place where I can be creative and really start experimenting. I feel like vlogs were a baby that, you know, I didn't think that it was going to survive, but it Mm. survived. It's healthy and it's just forever going to be my treasure. So it's definitely like my most prized, I guess, creation Mm. and something that's the most um, real yeah, and and how, like when did you know you had a thing? Like when did you know like this was viable? Like was there a, a, a theme or topic that you covered in in an episode that you're like, wow, this really is resonating? Hmm, I think that's kind of difficult because um, uh, it's difficult for me to answer because I never knew when it was really viable. Like even like two three months ago, uh, I wasn't sure. I'm always a bit anxious. Like oh, I don't even even know if this is a real job. <laughs> you know, both even my parents also they were apprehensive even now um but i think for me it was um i knew it was kind of viable when uh 
I started getting really like consistent views, obviously, um, good feedback. And especially when I was like walking around New York and people started recognizing me and I would be like, what? <laughs> what? You know me? And I would get super shy. Um, I think it was just some of those indicators that like showed me that, okay, this is actually something like this is a job for me. Like yeah. for me, it was always like a means of getting a job. And that's how I started. But um, yeah, Sometime along there, it transformed into full-time. Well, it's interesting. You've hired an employee. You've blogged about this. And you you have um, a, cl- a clear studio mentality. You're creating um, content for yourself and maybe brands. Um, but I wanted to go back because you are not – this is not just you. Like you have a whole life beyond the vlog. And it goes back to attending Cornell University. You studied food science. And like honestly, I've never had a food scientist on the show – but I, uh, when I went to the University of Wisconsin, that was my major going into school was food science. Okay. Um, I realized soon after the first week of Chem 103 <laughs> that I was terrible at science. Like, I, I had no idea. I, my education in high school was bad. But tell me, what, what is food science like at Cornell and what did you learn? And maybe how did this get you thinking about food in a different way? I think for food science, there's really like three ways, like three um, paths, I would say. So there's like food science, food science, you know, <laughs> the latter half written in uh, italics. Um, and it's really delving into the more sciencey part of it. It's, you know, working in labs, um, the molecular uh, stuff behind it, like bio, a lot of physics also, um, also the mechanisms that are related with creating food um, and more of like the engineering aspect of it. And then there's food science safety. That's making sure that everything you're eating, everything you're grabbing from the grocery store is shelf stable and safe and, you know, there's no pathogens so that everyone's happy consuming it. And then there's food science business, um, which is the more entrepreneurial side, you know, food startups, um, kind of looking into more consulting aspects of it, how uh, food would be integrated in a grocery store setting, you know, emerging into a CPG um that whole stuff. Mm. And uh, I've always been more interested in the food science business part of it. I My biggest dream was to have a little stall in Union Square Farmer's Market and maybe sell my own kimchi. Like that was be- that was my biggest dream. Wow. Was, when you were up in Cornell, you yes. were coming down to New York and you were like, this is my future. And like this is like, you know, a, a few years back when kimchi and Korean food, we'll get into the rise of Korean food in our culture in America. But like it wasn't as big, right? It was kind of more of a niche thing in a way. Yeah, for sure. Um, Like even, so I lived in Canada when I was very, very young from third grade to fifth grade. And like back then I was like the only Asian kid in my school and we had packed lunches. So very much um, a lot of uh, what Asian Americans have felt. It was very like nerve wracking for me to always open the lunchbox. Um, But now it's like totally different. Like Squid Game really like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> helped us. I'll, I'll ride that wave. Thank you, Blackpink and uh, Squid Game. Um, but at Cornell, back to your, your career there and your time there, when you were studying the business aspect, you were also, were you learning to cook? Like, was this something that you were starting to put the, the pieces together to become a, a cook that was beyond just like a home cook? Uh, to be honest, no. Uh-huh. Um, there was no really, like, there was not really like a cooking aspect of it. If anything, I felt more disconnected from food. Like, I saw food as more of 
as a chemistry or a biological aspect, uh, like biology aspect of it, than actually seeing it as an art. And I think that's also part of the reason why I got so drawn into the art side of it. Mm-hmm. I cooked during my free time. I've always been fascinated with cooking since high school and from an early age. I think I just always loved food, like just eating it more than cooking it. Um, and I still am. I still think that I'm a much better eater and a gourmet than I am a cook. Yeah, I think that's most of us. My hand is like raised in the air with that one. Now, you were at boarding school in Connecticut, and you've, you've written about the fact that you could not find Korean food in your town. So you started cooking in your room, your dorm. What were some of the dishes? Were there a few that you were trying to really master during boarding school? Every week, I would get together all my friends, and we would chip in a certain amount, and I would cook for my friends. But honestly, they were kind of my guinea pigs at that point. Um, I semi-forced them, you know, for the sake of our friendship. You need to have my, like, cooking. Like, you need yeah. to like this. Um, nothing from then that I'm very proud of. Like, a lot of it was just um, kind of learning how to cook. It was also just, like, learning how to host as well and all the different aspects involved with cooking like plating you know or the different temperatures of food was not something that I like thought about I remember one incident where I was making like kimchi burgers and I put the buns in the oven thinking oh it's gonna warm up the buns no it was super crusty like a crouton it was two croutons and a kimchi (laughs) and like not so melted American cheese on top and like people did not look happy that this is what ten dollars amounted to so you were um, cooking were you cooking ichigais were you doing any kind of large jungles any large pots in your dorm room too I did, but I got way too many complaints from my neighbors, and I was using the common room kitchen as well. Yeah. So at some point, you know, uh, we had a very uncomfortable dorm meeting. You know, there's some people cooking a lot in the dorm oh, rooms. Some you know, people, some people like looking not at you. Yeah. Like looking around no, like I was that. literally just you know biting my nails, just like looking Ugh. to the side, and like, not me, right? Um, so after that, I tried to keep it a bit more contained. Um, so more small bites and like cold <laughs> food, um, but still like. That did, that still didn't that still didn't stop me from like loving cooking. How'd that make you feel? I mean, having this dorm meeting and having folks like look at you in a different way because of the f- smell or whatever of your if you cooking your food of your home, like how did that make you feel? I think that's when I it, obviously I was a bit self conscious, but in a way I was also very. Like, you know what? I don't care. This nice. is my food. Um, and that's kind of my mentality for, like, don't yuck my yum, which was the catchphrase that I ran with TikTok in the beginning. Like, that has really set in. Um, yeah, like, when I was younger and a bit more insecure about my food, I would hide. But now, like, I mm-hmm. am proud, loud and proud. So No, and I, I get that from every fiber of your being on the vlogs. I think that you're extremely proud and you're extremely skilled. And... I just wanted to know about your background because it seems like you've grown and and you've grown into this kind of role as like a real influencer for Korean food in the world. Yeah, it's still very surreal to me. I still don't consider myself a great cook. I think there's so many people who cook much better than I do. But what I do best is just like a mixture of these things. Um, Like I'm, uh, I can edit, I can shoot, I can talk a little bit, uh, hopefully. Um, but, um, Talk about Costco, do yeah, your makeup. I mean, I, there's so many cool things. <laughs> yeah, no, it's something that I'm still getting used to. I'm not 100% like comfortable, to be honest. Like There are times where I feel like, 
oh, like, am I doing really a good job of representing it? This is food that I like, but it does, it's not representative of like the most authentic cuisine because I spent half my life in the U.S. as well. So it is very much like a me cuisine, but I wouldn't say it's a Korean cuisine per se. Yeah. Well, I see your food cooked like in my feed. I see people tagging you in my life. Like, uh, you know, my friends, I, I see you tag, like honestly. And um, I really appreciate that you're you're identifying this as your cuisine. And I'm interested, um, and let's get into this conversation now. I want to I wanna know... Korean food in America, Korean-American cuisine versus Korea-Korea cuisine. Mm -hmm. It's a topic I think about a lot in the books I work with, with Dookie Hong on. But I'd love to get your take about the difference between the two. Yeah, it's, um, I think what I find the most, um, the biggest difference that I find is that Korean-American food, it's kind of the food that's served in Korean restaurants in America. And the dishes that are more popular here are not necessarily dishes that are really popular back home. Like sundubu, for example, is I think a great example. Yes, very popular in Korea, but not as popular as it is in New York City for BCD Tofu House. Yeah. It's not really a hip food that like young people <laughs> go for. It's a very much an ajoshi food and ajoshi is like an old man food. Mm-hmm. It's what you go grab um, during lunch break lunch break really quickly during winter because um, it's warm and um, you know spicy, but not really something that people eat on a regular I think I've had better sundubu in America than versus Korea like hands down oh me too I I think uh, BCD in LA and New York I like chodongol they do great sundubu amazing Um, I love CDG with the burning passion it's really great and um, I just was there last weekend with my family I have to ask um, is there a dish that that is like popping in Korea that maybe hasn't hit here I mean we're in the book Korea world we have a whole section we're trying to like answer this question but for you what's the reverse I'm trying to think. I think it's a a lot of the uh, more interesting combinations that are like like cafe culture, I would say, is like huge in Korea. So cafe culture in Korea is like all about excess. It's overindulgent. It's a lot of butter. And I think another thing that um, uh, when people are visiting, they're surprised about is Korea's love for butter. Like we... Um, I use this quote that was used in Bon Appetit a while back, but um, I think Carla Lala Music said this, but butter is the best cheese. And that's exactly how Korean people feel right now. Like mm-hmm. it's butter with red bean filling on pretzels and it's called ang butter. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's probably like the food to get. And there's just butter in everything right now. Like we, it feels like we almost just discovered it. Like cultured (laughs) butter, like sweet cream butter, like Korea is really opening up to butter. Really interesting observation, Tina. And I I, I agree my time in in Korea, you you think, okay, like dairy-free, you think the typical East Asian um, palate and not having a lot of dairy, but it's in Korea, it's on its head. I mean, absolutely, you see it everywhere. Same with the corn dog. And I think that's an American food that has been exported to Korea, but then reinvented in the most incredible. Dude, it's like crazy. The corn dogs in Korea. <laughs> yeah, and there's ones that are like just squid ink covered with yeah. um, a cross section on the hot dog itself. So when it drops in the oil, it like spreads like octopus legs. Oh. Like it's very very creative. Um, like there's also like powdered cheese on top. It's it's a lot. I love it personally. I, I am not as in love with it. Just for me, I'm just like I personally, it, it's not hitting me hard. For me, I'm I'm like 
it more into like the deep bench of um, classic dishes. Like I'm more into like the gamjatangs of the world. Okay. Like that that to me is like what really strikes like as a food writer and just as a fan, like these old school chigues and, and tongs. And like, to me, that's like exciting. Mm-hmm. I don't, I mean, that's just, that's where I kind of look at it, but I'm certainly not Korean. So I, I don't, I have a different gaze. I think I like both a lot. Like for me, it's divided into, so those kinds of like kamjatang, the ajashi food that I say, um, is what I crave probably like the day after I drink. Like I need a good soup, hangover soup to really just like cleanse me. And I need to be like a little sweaty in the morning just so that, you know, the toxins go out. This is not scientific info. (laughs) Like do not quote me on it, but I feel like it cures my hangover. But the corn dogs, it's like a guilty indulgence for me. Like it's what I crave when, um, you know, I just want to feel a little bit nostalgic. It's I just have really good memories. Like after school, I would go cross the street and order like the corn dogs and the stringy mozzarella and um there's also this thing called uh uh, fried Pikachus, which is tonkatsu that's really thinly battered. Like, we don't oh, know. Oh, yeah, that sounds amazing. Yeah, we don't know what the meat inside is. Like, I still don't know, but it was like around 50 cents or a dollar for like the nicer places, and it would be smothered in um, gochujang, sweet and sour gochujang sauce. And like, those are reminiscent foods for me. So I like both. I don't know. As much as I like that OG mm-hmm. Korean food, I also love like the junky, like kitschy mm-hmm. aspect of it. Pizza. Is there good pizza in Seoul? I, I've asked a few folks. I think you know this answer. There's got to be. Well, I'm leading the witness. Is there good pizza in Seoul? I think that you can find one of the best pizzas in Seoul. Wow. Yeah. Where? But it's really different types of pizza. Like there's obviously like Korean style pizza, yeah. which is a bit thicker. The toppings goes back to kind of overindulgent toppings, um, like with the sweet potato fillings and like the cheese crusts. It's a lot, but sometimes it hits. You know, is sometimes. there a name? Is there a pizzeria that you – I think like in Japan, there's incredible Neapolitan-style pizza like Savoy and other mm-hmm. places like that are doing incredible pizzas. Mm-hmm. But I've not encountered it in Seoul, but I know – or in Korea, I know it's there. Mm-hmm. Jackson Pizza, I would say. It's like the food that I would order in. And their Greek college pizza, it's Yo. with uh, zucchini – Eggplant, um, bell peppers, I think, and onions. I know it doesn't sound that good, but it's different and it's really good. And I, you also just don't feel like, oh, like I'm eating a pizza. I'm <laughs> eating a pizza. Like you're getting a few veggies in, so it, it might be also like a mental thing as well. But definitely like something that I always like crave uh, on a night out. Even I'm gonna check this out. I'm I'm going to Korea as we're recording this in a few in a few days, and we'll we'll get into that. Um, I, I have to I have to ask you: Are you down with some of the other YouTube creators? I mean, I I love um, Wongi. I love uh, Yummy Boy. Uh, Sungyuk, I think it's how you pronounce Sungyuk. Mm-hmm. Is that, are you part of a community of creators? I'm going to be honest. I've been a little bit antisocial. It's also interesting because like most of the creators that I know are America-based creators. So, um... Yeah, like I know all the LA-based creators mm-hmm. and the New York-based like food creators, but also like on the flip side, like Korean creators don't really know about me. Like most of my audience is actually US-based or UK and like anywhere that speaks English. So I 
yeah, I don't really wow. um, That's interesting. Come, come in contact like nobody has contacted me. So, That's really know. interesting. So do you roll in soul pretty anonymously then? Like relatively anonymously? Yeah, I would say I'm much less recognized in Korea than yeah. I am in New York. Um, like I even got recognized more while I was in Italy versus in Korea. So it's a bit interesting because um, yeah, all my content is in English. So um, it's a very different market. Like my YouTube analytics, if you look at it, it's like 0.1%. Korea. That's really interesting. It's very, very, it's like far down in the bottom. Yeah. From a business strategy, I'm curious, have you thought about doing some Korean language videos or is that something that you're not quite ready to do? So I did do subtitles for a while and my written Korean, I would say is okay. Like yeah. uh, I feel like I've watched the right amount of Korean entertainment shows where I can like use slang and be a, a little mm-hmm. bit hip, but not like a hundred percent. I did try, but I realized it's not like what I'm the most comfortable at and some of the jokes that I make are very like punny and based on American humor I grew up watching mostly Disney Channel um because my mom wanted my English to be good. So I have all these like American pop references but I don't have them for Korea. So I found myself pretty like uh yeah not being able to really be the best at telling the jokes that I like to tell in Korean. So we'll see from now on. Like if I get another, um, if I get a Korean subtitler who is like well-versed in both, then we'll see. You're, I, I buried the lead when entering you. You're like funny as fuck, dude. You're really <laughs> oh, hilarious. No, I mean oh. it. Like you're, you have punchlines. You you have great ta- comedic timing. You clearly have a future in acting. And I think there's definitely some vibe there that kind of would translate. Um, are you a fan of any American comedies or uh, or cooking shows like what about American cooking shows growing up I think Food Network was one thing that I watched all the time. Alton Brown has been a very, very influential figure for me. Um, I would have his like Good Eats series on all the time. And so I good. think that's where my like interest for food science really sparked because um, it was the first cooking show where it wasn't um, a basic instructional uh, cooking show, but more going into the science behind it. Like, I loved science when I was growing up. Bill Nye also. Oh, um, yeah. Shout out Bill Nye the science guy. Yeah, also a Cornell grad. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, so Alton Brown was definitely someone that I absolutely loved um, watching growing up and all, obviously Ina Garten as well. Yeah. Um, what else? I'm trying to think. But a lot of YouTube, I would say. Like, my generation, I would say I watched a lot of Munchies growing up, like Vice, uh, mm-hmm. the more, um, like, the YouTube shows as well. Mm-hmm. So it was a good mix of both. Like Chef's Night Out. Yes. Great obviously. show. Yeah, Chef's Night Out, especially the early days, uh, will go down as, like, real classic. Like, classic food TV. And mm-hmm. I think it doesn't get as much respect because it's, like, YouTube. But anyone who's, like, read anything in a trade or, like, is looking with like has two eyes open youtube is the future of entertainment Mm -hmm. like clearly i agree yeah and for me like another person that i forgot to say um was eddie wong was someone that um when i first watched him i was like wow this is like an asian american um personality that hasn't really been shown before and he was going around like showing like new york classics especially like chinatown and the way he writes as well like i love his writing style and it's very personal um very like dialogue driven and I love that Um, I think that was like one of the shows that also like made me realize wow like cooking uh, TV cooking shows can have like different people and like also people from like so many different backgrounds so that was something that like really kind of you know uh 
had uh, light bulbs going off in yeah. my brain. I was like, wow, this is this is crazy. This is so great. Like such a great shout out to Eddie Wong. I think Double Cup Love is like such an underrated um, memoir. Um, it's his story about living in Chengdu, and there's some love, love and loss in, in it. And um, Eddie is a real one of one, and I just I love his work too. We share that love. Um, oh, Cornell, I have to ask you, Moosewood. Like, what do you did you go there? Is that like a place that you go? I, I wonder because I know the books. Mm-hmm. I rarely make it up to up there up to Ithaca, so I, I don't know. Is that do you go there? Not really. <laughs> I don't think I like the. It's not one of the places that I remember. Um, to be completely honest, Moosewood not making it into the younger generation. No, it's. I mean, the 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 the, the books are are legendary, and we you know that we published all the books at ten speed. But um, yeah, I have to get up there. It's it's it, they were like one of the preeminent vegetarian restaurants mm-hmm. in America in like the eighties and seventies. Yeah. No, I remember where it is. It's kind of like in the center of Ithaca, like more yeah. closer down. Like it's down the hill. So anything down the hill, like, you know, going down is fine. But then we know that going up is kind mm-hmm. of, you know, it's tough. So I would rarely make it down the hill. No, I, I know. I, I, as, a, as somebody who went to school in a, in a great town that was outside of college, I didn't really go to the outside of college part of Madison, Wisconsin. So I know what you're saying. Yeah. I think we always went to like the more grimy places um, like Ithaca. I think it was called... Um, Wings over Ithaca, you yeah. know, that was like, I would go to the college spots like when I was there. There's actually surprisingly so many Korean restaurants in um, in the college town, um, uh, in the Cornell College Town. I think there's like three or four. Wow. It's crazy. There's Coco's, which I waitressed like part time. Oh, cool. Um, and then there is this um Bunsik place like for more for like fast food per se and then there is another one called Four Seasons and I, and I think a fried chicken place also opened and there's also amazing um, ca- like Korean style karaoke and bar food place as well um, that's a little bit far further out but it's crazy like there's so much Korean that's food that's cool um, and also like pretty good as well pretty good like not like great but yeah, you know yeah. pretty good decent. you know it's decent good for a college town upstate New York um, so I'm heading to Seoul. I want to know, like, I love walking around, like, Songsu, Itaewon. I'm trying to wrap my head around Ujuro and, like, what's going on there. Mm-hmm. Like, the dying, those dying shops, electronic mm-hmm. shops. But in general, why should we listeners visit Seoul right now? You should visit Seoul because there's no city like it. It's kind of like at one What surprises many people when they first visit Seoul is how big it is. There's also so many people and it spreads so large. Mm -hmm. The Han River cuts through the middle of it. The food scene like from one end to another is just so diverse. And you could walk 10 minutes and just go into a completely different part of town. Like you'll see skyscrapers, but then you walk 10 minutes and you see like the old traditional markets. You can see high-end Michelin star restaurants, but you can also see the very run down, you know, run by old couple, the nopos um, that are just really old school joints as well. And in a weird way, it harmonizes, and I think there's really no place like it. So well said, Tina. I mean, it, it, there is a harmony between the old and new. There's a ter- great turnover every three to five years. I've been lucky to go several times, and it's unrecognizable in certain spots. Is there like a neighborhood or two that you can mention? I mentioned a few, but that you would recommend we go to? 
I think Uchiro is definitely one of my favorite places to visit because also because um, we know that it's going to be gone in a few years. It's going to be all torn down for um, development in a few years. So I feel like it's one of those places that are fleeting. Like if you if you go now, it's really now or never. And um on top of the great food, you can see that it's also very industrialized as well. But there's also a lot of young people opening restaurants and bars. And now it's kind of taken up by the young community as mm-hmm. well. It's kind of cool to go to these old school joints. And we call Ujiro Hipjiro. Yeah. Uh, kind of as a mixture of like yeah. it's hip and then Ujiro. It's a cool neighborhood, especially mm-hmm. like the at night, like the the open streets and like some of the, the stalls there. I mean, to me, having been only a couple times, it, it reminds me of like Williamsburg and like the early 2000s. 2000s. I feel the old and new, but we know that it's go- like our Bushwick in 2005. We know it's going to be gone in, mm-hmm. in, in a moment. And like we never, we didn't actually know that in New York when like in 2005 it was going to go. But Ujiro, they've been saying for years, like it's going to be gone because this is like the electronics shops. Like it's where a lot of Korea's electronics were based, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Is there like a restaurant you like in Ujiro? Um, a place that I always go to is a makgeolli place called 7.8 and it's actually run by uh, expat and mm-hmm. um, he has an amazing selection of uh, craft makgeolli and like really great bar food and you can also like sit outside like where all these like printers and like industrial parts of the um, of the city is and it's in a very unassuming part as well um, I definitely love going there for um, Ita which is mm-hmm. you know um, Ita is where you first go to eat and drink and then Ita I'm sure you know is um, where you go for drinks and bar food mm-hmm. and sometimes where you go for uh, the third round but this is like one of my favorite Ita places to go for Ita there's so much good food there I think it's hard to say but I love getting um, the baby octopuses there spicy baby octopus octopus mm-hmm. with um, um which is potato oh, yeah. fritters, uh, very similar to Jewish uh, latkes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love that. I love that dish. Now, um, songsu. Mm-hmm. What's like songsu to me felt like Bushwick. It felt like maybe a Brooklyn neighborhood. Is that a cool neighborhood? Is it washed? Like I, I, I don't speak Korean, so I don't know. I think songsu is the hippest like the it place to go right now like the cafes are the newest it's super shiny all the most instagrammable spots are there like it's right next to Seoul Forest and Seoul Forest is so beautiful holy cow it's amazing it is so beautiful like I run there um and it's you can get to the water as well it's just in a great part of town where like the the Han River diverges into two and it's kind of in this little it's surrounded by two bodies of water and uh, you walk in and it's also industrialized as well. Like I would divide Songsu into like the more Seoul forest um, part of it, which is a lot of cute cafes, very um, almost like Harajuku vibes, I mm-hmm. want to say. Um, and then more deep inside near Duksam um, is more industrialized. You see, you still see like the uh, welders and like auto shops that are slowly getting converted into cool cafes, just like Williamsburg. Just like Williamsburg and yeah. Bushwick, yeah. So, and I think it's the place to be. A lot of great artists also live there. Yeah. So, yes. yeah, definitely visit. Seoul is amazing. We're, we're talking exclusively of north of the river neighborhoods. So let's go south of the river. Mm-hmm. Uh, and listener, if you stuck with us, you're interested in Korean food and culture. But I really want to dig into Seoul because it, I don't, we don't get to talk about it as much in like U.S. media. I feel like you only hit a few spots. It's There's a language barrier. There's just not enough focus on it, but I love Seoul so much. So mm-hmm. south of the river, I'm heading, um, we know about Gangnam, obviously, but are there neighborhoods that you recommend in the south side? 
I used to live um, near the Socho area, which yeah. is south of the river, kind of like where it is in Gangnam. Um, but a place that I think surprises a lot of people is Soremar, which was right next to it. And it's kind of, it's really interesting because it's a community made up of French expats. And there's mm-hmm. really great French restaurants, um, places to hang out, really good organic wine bar. I think Korea is having a big organic wine um, phase right now, um, which makes sense because we're so into fermented foods. Yeah. Like we love funky and um, anything with a lot of age and time. Um, so I would say Sorema, definitely go check it out. I am definitely a advocate for North of the River, though, because it has more soul definitely. and history, um, but still great places to eat and check out. Thanks, Tina. It, it's really cool to hear you kind of, you know, detail all these neighborhoods, and I really recommend visiting Seoul. Hit me up on Instagram if you want more pics. I got I got a spreadsheet. Okay, you're in New York. Um, this section, I want to get a sense of what you're doing in New York and what you're doing in the States. Um, do you have are you on vacation? Do you have work? What's 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 going what's going down here? It's half and half. I do have a couple talks here. Um, oh, cool. That I'm I'm going to UPenn for a talk, and then I have something at Cooper Union um, on the fifteenth uh, on on Saturday. Um, so half for work, half for pleasure. Um, also to just catch up with friends and eat good food. I want to hear a little bit about your cooking at home? And you know, I spotted your lazy Susan that you, you have on on the, on your cooktop or near your cooktop and it has your staples and I think it really is poignant. It it strikes a chord with me about the Korean staples because it's different than what we're going to have in America in some ways. And I, and I, and you, you detail this in your, in one of your episodes where you you give a tour of your kitchen. Um, you, I I spotted grapeseed oil, white pepper, soy sauce, olive oil, kosher salt. Now, why, like, why is it, why are these your staples? Like specifically, you're cooking with grapeseed and this white pepper over black pepper. Grapeseed because it's really great for both hot and cold. And like when I'm doing dressings and because it doesn't imbue such a heavy flavor, I like to have that like clean taste. Mm-hmm. Um, white pepper because it's so different from black pepper. I prefer white pepper taste over black pepper. It's a bit more pungent. You don't need as much. And... Uh, um, when I'm doing a fritter or when I'm doing something fried, like sometimes I just don't like seeing those like black specks in my batter. Um, and it's just more, I would say it just mixes better also in soups. I don't know. I also grew up eating a lot of white pepper and black pepper mixes, but um, it's also easy. It's um, the one that I have is this is, I know this is blasphemy, it's pre grounded, <laughs> but it's really for like a quick, like, poof. So I mean, that's... listen. We can't all we can't always grind our pepper. We don't always have time, and you, exactly. you know, and our grinders sometimes get dull. No, exactly. Not blasphemy. <laughs> no, I think we white pepper is. We have a great piece about white pepper that Kathy Irway wrote, and I'll, I'll link to them in the show notes because I agree. White pepper, it's something. There's an herbaceousness that's a little different, and sometimes mm-hmm. it's just like an aesthetic choice. Mm-hmm. You don't want to see the little ants on no, your food. No. Um, let's talk about a recipe code you want to crack. I mean, you're always testing and. And uh, your partner's a chef as well, and and you got you did a great video about a cookie recipe that you you had tested with tahini, which I thought was really really banging. Um, so what are you working on? Is there a recipe grail, Tina, that you really want to crack in the next few months? In the next few months, um, I've been really getting into makori, 
And makoli is a fermented rice wine drink. And I think I want to really also utilize it in my cooking. I want to, we really, really want to make a makoli bread. So using the makoli as a leavening agent instead of putting yeast um, because it has both gray yeast and mold um, but it is very tricky because it reacts very differently and it's just like sourdough except plus like the kombucha aspect of it so it's quite finicky and it's steamed instead of being yeah. baked as well cool. it's super fluffy it's white and just you get that great aroma from the alcohol being evaporated as well and like the the smell is like amazing we still we haven't really cracked it just yet um we're testing and seeing like what works best but um definitely makoli bread is on my list i love the uh, using makoli in baking i think it's so smart as a living agent or just as a flavor i mean it has like a definitely pronounced flavor that would you know send your bread away from europe and towards east asia in a cool way which i think is great and then milk bread have you done milk breads oh i love milk breads like the tangzong element of it which is kind of making that glue so Mm -hmm. that the gluten is really well incorporated and you know it's kind of i call it the squish test like when you squish the bread and if it comes back up to its original shape that's when it has passed the test and um i think like a lot of the times baking is um very Uh, it's not something that people go to Asia to eat. Like you don't think that you'll be eating pastries, but there's really, really great Asian pastries and Asian way of doing these classic French uh, baked goods that I think is very interesting as well. So if anyone's visiting Asia or Korea, like definitely try the pastries. I think that it'll blow your mind. I agree. I think it's it's very underrated, um, especially with um, a lot of Korean pastry chefs training in Europe training in the States, and then coming back and being creative. Yes. Um, have you been to Burrow ever? In, I have not. In Brooklyn? Uh, a great bakery, um, European-centric, but with um, Japanese um, inspiration. Okay. Highly recommend. Okay. Right I'll, in Dumbo. I'm going to write that down. Yeah, Burrow's great. All right, so cookbooks. Let's talk about that. I, I want to get your sense of, like, your future with cookbooks. But first, as a baseline, are there cookbooks that – you have around that you're uh, reaching for, that you're reading for inspiration and influence. We publish cookbooks here at at Penguin Random House, so I have to ask you this question. Um, I don't know if this is, if I can say this, but anything from Fidon, I absolutely love. You can absolutely say this. That is definitely not our company. (laughs) No, I'm I'm a wonderful answer. (laughs) Because it's so beautiful and um, the, I think it's also like the texture of the cookbooks and just the photography and everything. Um, I love using those as a reference point for the food styling aspect of it. But I like to look at both Korean cookbooks and American cookbooks both. Um, Korean cookbooks more for the technique of it. I like books that are more technique-driven than really uh, instructional so that I can have more creative space when making recipes to utilize those techniques but with my own twist. Absolutely. I think it's great when you can merge um, technique and style. And, you know, the U.S. books have a little different style. Are there any U.S. publishers or books that you're interested in? I don't mean publishers. I'm not trying to have you say anything nice about the building we're in. I'm, I'm totally kidding. But are there authors here in the States that you really admire and books that you reach for? Oh, there's so, so much. I'm putting you on the spot, I realize. No, no. Um, I love 
I think food writing um, is something that I'm the most interested in. So um, I know this doesn't completely answer your question, but one of my favorite classes that I took at Cornell was a food writing class. And it was my favorite class because mm-hmm. um, over the food science ones because it kind of opened up the idea using food as a medium to tell stories. And I've always loved the, like, the whole storytelling aspect with food. And it's just... It's not just a nourishment, obviously. There's so much personal feeling, emotions and history and culture that surrounds it. Um, and I always love to say that it's an edible piece of history. Mm-hmm. Um, MFK Fisher, obviously, for the way she ri- writes about food and the emotional aspects of it. Um, who else? Anthony Bourdain, I would mm-hmm. obviously have to say. Um just the whole traveling aspect of it and like utilizing culture and kind of like it makes you feel like you're in that place. Mm-hmm. Um, I also love Eddie Huang, as mm-hmm. we uh, mentioned before. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I, I, it's great. You're reaching for some classics there. Some real, cl- I, I think it's it's cool to get your read on, on how you create using cookbooks. Like I think it's something that we talk about a little bit is like cookbooks as inspiration as home cooks, but also cookbooks as inspiration for creators. And what are our reference points? So you're when merging both Korean and American books into your work. It's cool. Okay, so for Doobie Doobop, what's next? I, I love this question because I'm really curious. Now, do you have a future in in like broadcast or streamers or are you going to stay on YouTube? I'm going to be honest. I would say no to conventional TV. I like the aspect of being the, uh, you know, being able to have everything under my control. I am a little bit of a control freak as to uh, deciding what goes out. I think I'm a bit nervous to let that be in the hands of other people. Like if I started on TV and then went on to YouTube, I think it would have been a different story. But because I've always been my own editor, I think that aspect of it is a bit scary but and also i do believe that the future is in youtube yeah. as well for food content um we'll see if there's any like anything interesting um that you know anyone's listening in and wants <laughs> to propose to me i'm open arms yeah. but for now i'm very very happy like with my community on youtube um i think we'll see like in five years maybe if i don't want to be in front of the camera and i want to be on the back end of it like that would be really interesting to um do but for now i like YouTube. I'll, and uh <laughs> uh what about tiktok are you are you recutting youtube for tiktok are you creating tiktok exclusive and like it's clearly growing and I've been talking to my colleagues here and just in, at Taste and like it's really hard to compete with TikTok right now when creating – we're trying to teach our readers to cook better and cook smarter and feel comfortable. But man, we can't compete with TikTok. Yeah, TikTok is a force of its own definitely. I started out on TikTok and then I converted over to YouTube. Um, as From a creator standpoint, I definitely prefer YouTube just because being able to um, have – a revenue stream from your own videos is very empowering instead of having to rely on brands and sponsorships. So definitely I've been more focused on YouTube, TikTok for the reach that it has and uh, like the uh, the people that you can reach. I love both platforms, but um, and it's important to be present on both pa- platforms, but it's also very difficult as a creator doing all these different things because I do a food blog on the side as well and I like to write and there's other things that I would like mm-hmm. to do. So it 
depends on what kind of help I can get, I think. Yeah. For sure. It's a bandwidth issue. Yeah. It's like you got to focus on a few things and do it really mm-hmm. well. Um, what about competition shows? Like, I mean, would you, would you, would you do Iron Chef? Would you do Chopped? I don't know. I think, <laughs> I don't know. Um, for food competition shows, I think I like watching them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I personally feel like I would just be uh, crying in a corner yeah. uh, if that were to happen. I like uh, cooking at my own pace as well so uh probably not yeah i i think that's wise to stay out of the arena (laughs) i know you would you would crush it and you would you you would rise and win but man what a stressful thing it is very stressful and i think just you know the little things i think i'd be a little bit too self-conscious to be honest but once i'm maybe if i hone my skills down a bit better and i am just more well-versed with also uh mainstream tv maybe it'll be something that i consider Tina, we asked all guests in the Taste Podcast, if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world, I'm very interested in this answer. Tina, what would that cookbook be? I would love to do a cookbook really focusing on fermentation and um, diving into the cultural aspects of Korean cuisine and how it came to be. I think that's something that really fascinates me. And if I were to also delve a little bit more deeper, I think um, because the last 50 years or the last 100 years um, in Korean history, it's been so, like, so much has happened. Like, I say that it's a thousand years of history that's been just compressed into a hundred years. I would love to kind of um, do a book that delves into the historical aspect of Korea and how it impacted, like, Korean food. That's something that I would love to do if I had unlimited time and resource. Yeah, you answered, you you, you followed the assignment because it is a huge project. But, <laughs> I mean, even since 1980, what has happened in Korea is is an absolute miracle. It's called the miracle, mm-hmm. right? The miracle of the Han River, yes. The Han River, yes, miracle yeah. on the Han. But it's it has to be said, and especially speaking with you, someone who lives in Korea— the rise of Korean culture in America, it's amazing. And to cover that would be quite a journey. It would. And I think also, um, I think the best way to put it is, I don't know if you've read Pachinko, but it's kind of like Pachinko, yeah. how it follows the different generations and the cooking aspect like and how like cooking has changed um, with the different generations. Like, if you just even go, to, you know, as you mentioned, to the 80s or if we go back to the 50s, like so much has changed and like how Korea has gone from really like poor country to what it is now. There's so much to really delve into historically and see how different types of food was cooked. Do you want to write a book? I think I do. I used to be very anti-book because I felt like I wasn't in a position to write a book. I was freshly graduated graduated from college and I've never worked in a kitchen. Um, so I felt uncomfortable with the idea of doing books before, but now I would like it to be more of telling stories. It will be story-driven with recipes woven in, but not necessarily a instructional recipe, how to make the best kimchi. Yeah. I would trust Mangchi with that. Me too, uh, yeah. always. Eric Kim or Mangchi, <laughs> one of the two. Yes. So I would love to do one that kind of reflects me as who I am. And um, maybe in two, three years, I think I would be ready to do one. Well, I hope to have you back then or even sooner and talk about that book. Tina Choi, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. 
Jordan Michaelman, welcome to the Taste Podcast. I'm so happy to be back. Thanks for having me back, Matt. Well, I'm um, going to talk about your column in Taste Rabbit Hole, and you've you've written several so far, and have filed a copy to your next one for your next one, or, or working on your next one at least. But I wanted to start by talking about a story you did not write for Taste. You actually wrote it for Bon Appetit. It's a uh, headline. I'm not sure if you came up with it. You can tell me if, if you did or not. Is natural wine losing its cool factor? It published a couple weeks ago. It's been the talk of the town. I love the piece so much. We'll link to it in the show notes. But I just wanted to first find out, is this your headline? Yeah, so um, headline fluffing adjustment, wholesale creation, that that sort of stuff, headlineology. It's something that, uh, in addition to the stuff I do with Taste and a bunch of other places, I also like my publishing company, Spread, which writes all about coffee. This is something we've worked on, you know, that fluency with it every day for like a decade. And it's actually pretty rare that a writer comes to us with a headline that we then use, right? Like usually that is suggested, or if the headline was a good idea, like the base sent in, you'd like to see that somewhere in the text of the story, but it's not necessarily what you're going to choose to run. So uh, to answer your question, no, it was not my headline. And when I had uh, been working on the story and sort of conceptualizing it, but also filing drafts using this phrase and email subjects and stuff, I was thinking about it with this idea of like the flattening uh, the creeping same, <laughs> the creeping sameness of natural wine, or like the flashing yeah. of natural wine, which was a helpful phrase to talk through. But I, in no means, by no means, was like married to it, or like it had to be that way, you know, for the headline. And I think that um, in that world, when you've got on the freelancer hat, it definitely behooves you to be very fluid, like water, and understand <laughs> that you're not the one. When you're working with the editors, their their fluency with their audience and their publication is what you're collaborating with. You need to kind of flow with that, right? And so when that came back in, it was further along in the editing process. And I definitely had a moment, you know, just being totally honest, where I was kind of like, you know, like the meme girl, the, like the meme who like at first she's like, hmm. And then she's <laughs> like, no. But like she goes back where you go back and forth between like, was that good? Well, I, I kind of did that same thing with it where like there was maybe part of me that was like, it made me cringe a little bit just because I felt like it was impactful. And then there was also part of me that thought about it that was like, damn, that's a smart headline. Like, I think that's really cool. And I definitely felt both ways about it. But ultimately, that's stuff that, at least from my perspective, is bigger than you. And just being totally honest with you, this is the first time I ever wrote something for Bon Appetit. So, like, you kind of pick your battles, yeah. right? I'm not going to, like come in at the end and be like, no, no, change the headline. Some people might get mad on Instagram. Yeah, well, you know, I like, Jordan, I like the headline, I, I and I like the story. And this story hits a note that I think resonates with many of our listeners, and it's this. There's been this sinking feeling within the food world, those who are maybe looking at food a little closer, maybe those who edit publications dedicated to food and drink, that natural wine has taken a turn, has maybe taken a turn towards the, I'll call it the all day rosé abyss. So, so I feel like, like maybe it, the, the idea of the cool factor is, is, is what we're talking about. We're also talking about the, just a populist nature of this beverage, how natural wine is everywhere. So I guess let's, let's get a little bit into the story why why cover this right now what 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 drew you to this topic 
So this came very naturally through a conversation with a woman named Serena Dye. So there's, I think about it in the ways, the way that's helpful to think about it is to talk about it as like two poles of wine, right? So there's one pole of wine that's sort of very large production, thinking about wine as kind of an industrial process, factory winemaking. Um, and then there's this other pole of wine that's like teeny, teeny, tiny, maybe they're making a thousand or a few small thousand cases of wine a year, which is really not very much. Everything is extremely done by hand. It's very sort of of the earth and, you know, they've got their email address on the handwritten on the bottle of wine or whatever. It's this tiny production artisan product, right? And then there's this whole ocean of wine that exists between those two things. And I think what started to happen as cultural interest and, um, like purchasing interest in the little teeny tiny production wine has grown and grown and grown and fused with this kind of generational aesthetic digital drinking culture thing. Uh, the, the line between those two worlds has gotten progressively pulled tighter and tighter and tighter. And along the way, you are having these kind of interesting moments along the progression of it where you have like, I talk about this in the article, like that the Coppola family winery makes a wine now whose labels look like you could have it at a natural wine shop. Um, and what does that really mean? You know, this idea of like, what does it mean to, to look like you're at a natural wine shop? And this is something that I've written about a little bit before. I did this big piece back at the beginning of 2021 um, with uh, with uh, Talia at Punch that was like a aesthetic drinking thing about like how wine label art, modern wine label art came to be. In a lot of ways, that story was sort of some building blocks for this thing with Bon Appetit that came out a couple weeks ago. But uh, the... That that middle space of like you're you're kind of close to the big production, but you're kind of close to the artisan handmade thing. That has had this increasing kind of ownership of sales sphere, mind share, Instagram likes, all this kind of stuff, and so you end up with these sort of interesting moments where like um like a brand like Mind Clang, which I talk about in the story, um is making wine. You know they've got an eighty hectare biodynamic wine. Uh, project and it's part of an even bigger farm that's there in a national park in Austria and they make a it's a, that's a lot of that's a large amount of land it is much more than most wine domains have um and uh they make by comparison a pretty large quantity of wine in fact they make so much wine that like a general edit like a generalist editor of a magazine would notice like wow why is that wine everywhere you know like up to that point and um and it was something that that specific label everybody that i talked to with the, for the story lots of other people who weren't quoted in the story they would pull that one out and be like yeah that stuff's it's everywhere like it just seems like it's everywhere you know let me ask you this about mind clang could you show your face at mind clang after writing this story well you know it's funny i um i haven't heard anything from them but somebody from the Austrian Wine Council emailed me um, and they were very nice. They invited me to an event that they were having in New York City because if you write something for Bon Appetit or Taste, people just assume you live in New York City. Um, and uh, <laughs> I uh, wrote them back and I was like, oh, this is so nice of you. I really appreciate it. Unfortunately, I'm based in Portland, Oregon. I'll have some time in the city a little later on in the year. Yeah, yeah. The same spiel I give everybody. But um, she wrote me back and was like, oh, I just assumed you live in New York because you wrote for Bon Appetit. Just so you know, we all thought the article was great. Um, if finance bros want to drink Mind Clang now, we think that's awesome. 
which is like a cool attitude to have, right? Like it's the best attitude, especially if you're, you know, making money based on every bottle you export and based on the, the, I feel like as a government represent representative, you're going to be stoked about the story. I mean, but they're like, a, they're a big company. They're also a really big importer. Like a lot of American hashtag natty wines gets brought into central Europe from the like mine claim corporation. They're like a whole thing. So let me ask you this about the the actual the tastes and preferences of these millennial and under um, demo that you're that you're writing about. So you write about um, this like conspicuous consumption um, and you kind of tie in, um, you know, interest in outdoor shopping malls, the bright white Tesla dealership ball hat and frozen Roberta's wood fired pizza as these totems of this of this kind of generation that is you know old, younger than me younger than you um less younger than you um i want to tap into your take on other kind of categories that that these this group identifies with yeah i mean to me it's this sort of um there's this cr- cringe or it's like a chuggy like a chugginess like i think is really <laughs> what it evokes for me and chuggy has been you know at least at first is sort of narrowly defined for the sort of pumpkin spice latte ugg boot aesthetic but i think the feeling of chuggy is bigger than that like there can be techno chuggy like the white tesla dealership baseball hat is like techno chuggy but there's also like foodie chuggy right there's this stuff that's like it's positioned as very small batch and artisanal and a rare experience that wor- that's worth twice as much than what's at the Safeway. It might be that, but it is also at like every fucking place that you go to. And if you are the sort of person who likes going to bottle shops and markets and food places or whatever, which I guess makes me foodie chuggy too that i like to go to these places i'm not saying i'm like above it but uh you start to sort of see it everywhere and there can be this like um um recognition of it or this like saminess of it right and uh i mean do you agree don't you think there's some stuff like that these days i don't know if it's the last couple of years and yeah it's a vc backed that's the word i was going to use vc backed uh chili crisps you know there's like six vc backed chili crisps and um I think funding is great for people who deserve it and who have a great idea. And, and but the promise of scale has made um, some of these products ubiquitous. Um, you know, the Giaization of the world um, to use a product that um, uh, has been written about a lot. And you know, I think they're actually struggling. Um, and they went on Shark Tank, which I, I think is an interesting. Um, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I, I can't. I can't judge, but it seemed like they had had some struggles financially, uh, and this this new era of of um, uncertainty and our creeping sense that recession is here is going to really affect this chuggyization of food. And I think some of these brands might go away. Not to pick on Gia, it's a great product. I love the spritz. Um, that's my take. I feel like uh, you've really hit something though with natural wine because it is this na- this thing that we we all want to go out and have a good time and we all want to like feel sophisticated and feel, feel like we're, we're going somewhere in our lives. And feels like natural wine is one of those things that just you order a natural wine, you, you kind of feel, feel good, which is, you know, not going to hate on that. Yeah. I guess I think that, uh, what is happening is natural wine is in some ways a helpful totem to think about the wider sort of 
ethical consumption, mindful consumption um, moment that really maybe has been what the last decade has kind of felt like for consumer trends and, and I think especially for food trends. But I mean, this also is, you know, a really big part of the story with that uh, Tesla ball cap is this greenwashing thing. It's this like mindful consumption thing. And um, I do think that a little bit of that has gone on with natural wine and certainly people who work in natural wine um, or around natural wine um, we'll talk about that. And I do think it's one of the interesting sort of counters. I mean, I tried to talk about it a little bit in the, arg- in the article too, of being like, you know, it, you can make, I guess, an argument that some of this stuff is better for the earth. But I think that that argument also then runs headlong into the fact that it's then getting put in glass bottles with corks on it and shipped to the other side of the planet. So how mindful are we really talking? And if we're having that conversation on laptops and cell phones that are full of rare earth mineral that was harvested through slave labor, how mindful are any of us actually being about fucking anything? Yeah, good point. Good point, Jordan. Anyways, this is a long way of talking about this, of saying that I think that, uh, that mindfulness stuff is a helpful sales thing. But there's also some of it's kind of true. You can support some really cool artists and stuff in natural wine. And I do think that, like, I like a lot of natural wine and think it's interesting. And, like, I've known people in that world a lot. And there are definitely some people whose, like, reactions to it were, like, maybe, I don't know, you're, like, are you messing up their money? Are you getting in the way of what they do for a living? Nobody likes that. And I have sympathy for, like, I talked about this with a friend of mine the other day, uh, shortly after the article came out, is that, like, somebody just bought 10 cases of Mindclang at, like, a wine bar in Pittsburgh, and they're, like, really weren't thrilled to read that article, like, you know, the day they paid the invoice or whatever. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I have sympathy for and I have sympathy for that, you know. I have, like, a lot of empathy for that. But uh, I was talking about this with a buddy of mine who sells wine, and he was like, don't worry about it. They're going to sell all that wine. It won't be a problem. They just aren't going to feel as cool doing it. Yeah, they might not feel as cool if they if they subscribe to one of its here or, or or check out their their website or or newsletters and read your article. But most people aren't doing that. They're just actually following the mainstream trends. And natural wine is something that um, certainly, like any wine conversations, you are only at the surface level at most conversations. Um, it's not snobbery. It's just kind of the fact of the matter. Something I really wanted to try to do with this business, with this story, and I think it was a little bit effective, but I hope that other journalists take it and run with it, is because uh, I don't want to be like the natural wine takedown guy or whatever, but uh, that there's almost no business reporting about natural wine. Because it is such an intentionally amorphous category, there's nothing like a Demeter board or organic cert or company whose job it is to take money from its members and give business reporters, you know, easy factoids about it. So there's really a lack of the, like, the money, the growth, the development, how big of a business it really is. Like, in one hand, it's tempting to be like, oh, that's just what the, like, the hipster and the hipster in the little little Portland district of every town is, is doing a natural wine bar. You know, it's not really that big of a thing. But, like, that shit adds up. There's a lot of it that gets bought and sold and drunk in America right now. Definitely. Well, I'll just say Alice Firing... Um, in her book, uh, Natural Wine for the People, um, certainly covers some of the economics of it um, to, to some extent. And, and, and she's a previous guest on the show and highly recommend checking out Alice Firing's work on natural wine. Last question about natural wine. What's the response been like for the story? There's been kind of every kind of response. Uh, and that's been interesting. I'll say that like on the inside baseball, like journalism side of things, I am more used to a story comes out and you kind of just care what the editor thinks and what your editors think and 
Like maybe people say nice things, but maybe you don't hear that much. Or if somebody says something snarky, it's kind of not a big deal or whatever. I'm less used to stories that have this level of volume. And some of that I think is a Bon Appetit thing. Some of that I think is a headline thing. Some of that I think is the topic. I think there was a lot of different sort of things about it. Um, and uh, so for there to be a story that I worked on that people are still like, I'm still getting asked about on a podcast or whatever, like two, three weeks later um, is less common for me. Um, and, uh, in some ways it's interesting to do some work in that world because it's interesting. And it was like a, a weird and memorable Thursday when it came out. On the other hand, I feel like if every Thursday were like that, I would, um, be stressed out and I wouldn't like it. It was like kind of stressful. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, I had, I had people throw tomatoes at me on Instagram. I had winemaker who used to make wine and left and came back like send me an email and be like thank you so much for writing this i had multiple people kind of be like you had the guts to say what everybody's thinking which is cool and i like is a nice thing to hear i also had people sort of do a little bit of like um identity critique on it which i think is interesting and valid and and um uh definitely makes sense and um uh, but you know, the editors and the folks at Bon Appetit, uh, were really happy with it, which does still matter even for a story that kind of catches some drift. I don't know when you've had conversations about that story, I sort of feel like I'm a bystander in it at this point, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And especially this is a story that went through a long reporting process and then lots of fact check and lots of other kinds of stuff. So I've been wrapped on it for a little while. Yep. Well, let me ask you a bit about, uh, or let's talk about Rabbit Hole. It's a column that you're writing on Taste, and I, I love it. We, we started talking about it, I think, almost a year ago. Um, but you've, you've been filing with Frequency, which is all of, you know, what a column is all about. So let's just set up, what, what are you trying to do with Rabbit Hole? Well, I think that we found ourselves at Taste um, with me and you working on stories that were kind of diving into very sort of particular little nodes or people that were responsible for little nodes of stuff in uh, the food world. And whether that was a person who was making content or a person who was like bringing in artisan products from another part of the world, or if it was some kind of really singular, like the lady who grows the wasabi out in the like misty mountains on the coast in Oregon, some of that kind of stuff, we were sort of digging these little thousand word 1500 word rabbit holes on food and beverage stuff finding one little thing and kind of digging down i mean you know a little ways into it obviously anytime you tap on something like that you're also rubbing against the subculture that's much much bigger than you can ever do in one story but um uh we were able to sort of say well you know about hey like well what if we were doing this as a regular thing and um and that's been really fun for me to do because i'm this very much filters through just how i like think about what, how I cook every day and what stuff's in my kitchen and that approach to like the world or whatever. Um, I've been working a bunch and, and maybe it'll even be out by the time this comes out or, or around then or whatever, but a story about how there's been all these interesting new Greek products that are like available herbs and spices and, and sort of more commonly available olive oil. And uh, it was something that I had kind of noticed from shopping around and just going to stores and being, being foodie chuggy and going to every fancy market I can find, you know, wherever I go. Um, and, uh, you were like, oh yeah, that sounds cool. And then I went and talked to these people who really know a lot about it. Like the, um, Mina Stone, the author Mina Stone and chef. Um, and then, uh, also like the woman who founded Daphnis and Chloe, which is like the very fine Greek and Cretan herb, like import company. Um, and they, they have their herbs all over the world now, including like increasingly in the United States and talk to them and them being like, 
Five years ago, nobody cared about any of this. Now there's a market for it. We're able to show that like our products from Greece are just as good as anything you get from Spain or France or Italy, places that have had these import-export footprints for 40 years. And there's reasons why, actually. There's like sort of Greek cultural reasons why that are intertwined with like the narrative of 20th century history in Greece. I just ended up having all these fascinating conversations with people who... Um, uh, it's their world, you know, and they've got the fluency in it and they really know. And- it's so interesting that you're targeting Greece. And we have been talking about this Greek product story. Um, it's interesting in that Athens for decades was often maligned by the press, was considered a city that was second rate in Europe. But then all of a sudden, not that these guys are the 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 tastemakers of, of all, but like Tyler Brule at, at Monocle has been really like doubling down on Athens and has been writing extensively about his love of Athens and how he's been going there a lot. And who knows if he's on the payroll of Athens, but he seems to be really, um, his brand is obviously future. He's a futurist and he's an urbanist and he really wants to look at like cities and cultures that are kind of merging um, and ones that are not. And he's been really, really focusing on Athens. So that's just a kind of an aside, but I can't wait to read your piece that you're going to file. And we're going to, are we going to run this this year? Remind me. <laughs> yes, it's going to run. It's going to run this month. Um, yeah, it's cool. Uh, you know, I like, I had a conversation with somebody uh, with, with, uh, with the chef, Mina Stone, and she was telling me that for years coming back and forth from Greece, you know, when you were waiting at JFK at the um, baggage center, you know, you could always tell which was the flight from Athens that you were looking for because there would be like, giant metal drums of olive oil that someone had checked on the flight that they intended to like distribute to their friends and family or sell at their deli or whatever. And this was just like what it looked like coming back from Greece. And that now you can find Greek, like nice Greek olive oil in a way that you never could. She used to have to go to the butcher, the one specific butcher shop in Astoria and get the guy's Greek olive oil. And that was the spot, you know, and now you can get it, you know, at a lot of other kinds of at a lot of other kinds of places um, at a high quality, and that that is sort of, I like any time there's a chance to tell a story that's also got some like social social moments, social critique, what's happening in the world that can feel kind of observational about the world that we live in and how it intertwines with food. And for me, you know, in, in some ways it's as easy as saying, oh, well, I guess people just figured out to set up a shop, Shopify for what their uncle used to bring over. But there's a lot more to it than that. There's a lot more layers to it than that. Um, and stories that feel like that can only kind of happen now, right? I think that's fun. Yeah, I love it. And I love Rabbit Hole. We will be speaking about white chocolate in the calendar year of 2023. That's a little teaser. We don't need to go into it, but white chocolate is coming. Jordan Michaelman, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.